Amen. This is, uh, the tag says, uh, Patrick the Pygmy Goat. Thanks for coming, Patrick. Glad you could be here. Um, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. I'm going to encourage you to follow along, but we need to, uh, we're going to need to warm up because we're going to a lot of places in Scripture, and if you're going to keep up, you're going to need to work those fingers out a little bit, get your page-turning fingers ready, or if it's a digital Scripture, you're going to want to do a little thumb exercise so you can get your scrolling and typing fingers ready. Are you ready? We're going to start, uh, we'll get there in a minute, but just so you know, we'll be starting at the pretty far left side of your Bible, and by the end of the morning, we'll be back at the pretty far right side of the Bible. Um, If you don't recall, your left hand makes an L. I've been working on that with a few individuals in my home recently. But we're actually going to start um, at everybody's favorite place, Ikea. Um, I have, I have a problem that I want to confess to you, and here's the problem. When I bring home a piece of furniture that requires assembly, and as you know, if you acquire a piece of furniture that requires assembly, um, it always comes with instructions. My problem is I have this fairly deep-seated belief. <laughs> You're laughing already. <laughs> Namely, I believe that I can figure out the right way to build this on my own, and more specifically, I don't need the instructions. Amen. 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 Who's who's with me? Come on. Who's with me? You don't need those instructions with those silly little pictures. You just rip them up and throw them away. Now, it turns out I, I am definitely not the only one, and we are not the only ones, because the internet will provide for you some wonderful examples of what happens when you don't follow the instructions. And and here's the really critical point. Um, The instructions are provided so that when you're done building this furniture, it serves the purpose or or creates the, the function that that furniture was designed for. And if you don't properly follow the instructions, something like this might happen, where the, the legs... That's just not going to work as a chair. Or something like this is going to happen. I don't even know what's going on with the drawers, but they they ain't keeping your things nicely. Or if you're like me and you have a lot of books or you have a lot of anything that you want to store on shelves, you need those shelves to be able to hold the things that you put on them. And if you don't build it right, I think, those are, I think those are all records, is what, that's what that looks like to me. But here's what I've been learning. God's really been, he's really been doing a work on my heart. <laughs> we're, we're kind of past the Ikea furniture buying stage, but man, were we in that stage for a while. <sighs> Actually, instructions are good because instructions enable purpose, right? If I don't follow the instructions and I put the I put the legs of the chair on upside down. That chair will not serve its intended purpose. It might serve some other purpose. I don't know. An expensive doorstop. But it will not serve the purpose for which it was intended, intended, namely to hold you up so you can sit on it. Uh, I want to preach a sermon today. The text is primarily Hebrews 
chapter 8, um, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. And I want to title the sermon, Build It. The alternate option would have been, Follow the Instructions. But I like to build it better because you know me. I like shorter phrases. I don't want any more words than necessary. I hear, Craig, that you made fun of me about that in your class just a few weeks ago. It was great. I, I'm all in. I'm all in. Um, but we're going to do this kind of inverted. We did it this way a few weeks ago. Here's what we're going to do. We're, where we're getting to is Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 13. But Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Jesus followers. And when they first read this, because of their deep Jewish background, they would have had all sorts of ideas and beliefs and images and, and teachings at the front of their minds that more likely than not is, is not necessarily on the front of our minds. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start uh, with a little bit of Genesis and a little bit of Exodus and a little bit of your favorite Leviticus. And I'm going to present some images and get them in the front of our minds, images that I believe would definitely have been on the front of the minds of the first congregation. And I put them on our minds so that when we read, finally, Hebrews 8, we have the same things in our head that I think they would have had in their head, and I think it's going to bring the text alive. Three things I'm going to talk about. The tabernacle, the central, of, central place of worship for the people of Israel, um, in their past. The day of atonement, the, the pinnacle day of worship every year at the tabernacle, and then the high priest, the most important individual person who led on the day of atonement in the tabernacle. I'm going to try to go quick, but I also want to get some of the details because the details matter when we get to Hebrews. So, are we ready? Are you, did you do your finger warm-ups? Okay, um, part one, tabernacle. Um, the history of Israel was such that Israel, God made a promise to Abraham, we're going to make you a great nation. They became a great nation. They got enslaved. They cried out to God and God freed them from their slavery and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And the covenant was the means by which God ensured his ongoing relationship with his people. And as part of that covenant... God gave instructions for how to make the tabernacle. And God apparently knew that there were people like me in the world who were inclined to not follow the instructions because God said this to Moses. This is God talking to Moses, Exodus 25. Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. See that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. He repeats himself. Like, Moses, I'm going to give you an instruction book. I'm not giving it to you so you can rip it up and throw it away. I'm giving it to you so you can follow it. Turns out, God actually pretty frequently throughout his scripture, but there's a few standout points at the beginning, gives detailed instructions to his people. Starts at the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. God says, Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one tree. You cannot eat from this tree. Very specific, not very long. Eh, you know, only one rule. They messed it up. A few chapters later, God's talking to Noah. The 
The world's having problems. There's going to be a big flood. God says to Noah, he's like, here's what you're going to do, Noah. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. I do not want any pine beetles in my ark, cypress wood. And it has to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Specific, detailed instructions. And so also in Exodus chapter 27, we get some of the details for how Moses is supposed to lead Israel in building the tabernacle. First, make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long, and it is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases. The north side shall also be a hundred cubits long and have curtains with posts and bases and silver hooks and bands on the post. And let me tell you, this is just a tiny bit of the details. You are more than welcome to go and read all of these chapters of Exodus and get all of the details. This is just the outer wall, and then there's the tent, and then inside the tent there's the furniture that goes inside the tent. Lots of details. But just like Ikea, God is giving these instructions not just to make people follow instructions, but he's giving the instructions so that the tabernacle might serve its intended purpose and function. Namely, a couple chapters later, Exodus chapter 29. There in the tabernacle, I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. And I will consecrate Aaron, who was the first high priest, and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord of God. So part one, the Israelites, the ancient Jewish people knew that God gave specific extensive instructions for how to build the tabernacle. But the reason he gave those instructions is so the tabernacle could serve its purpose. Namely, the tabernacle is built so that God might speak to his people and be with his people, the Israelites. In the life of the tabernacle, which was at the center of, of Israel, uh, Israel's religious life, um, there, were, there were sacrifices that happened every day. There were sacrifices that happened on kind of a seasonal basis in connection with one of the many festivals. But there was one sacrifice that was arguably the most important uh, critical sacrifice that only happened once a year. And that was a sacrifice that happened on the Day of Atonement. And there was lots of things that were important about this, but let's start with where it happened. So um, here's one artist's rendering of the tabernacle. You can see they've assembled their tents all around it so that the tabernacle sits in the physical center of the Jewish community. You can see in the outer courtyard, there's a big fire with the smoke going up. That was the fire, uh, that was the place at which all of the daily sacrifices that happened, most of them would happen there. If you want to read more about these, go home and read the book of Leviticus this afternoon 
and you will get all of the wonderful details, and you will see that there were lots and lots of reasons for people to offer sacrifices on a daily basis. And pretty much anybody, all sorts of people, could go into that outer courtyard and offer sacrifices there. However, inside the tent, there were two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. And in that room, only certain people could go. And they would only offer certain sacrifices at certain times and in certain ways. And then, of course, the second room, which was at the very back of the tent. And if you'll notice in this artist's rendering, there's a beam of light that comes down and shines on the back of the tent. That beam of light indicates God's most holy presence. Because the back of the tent was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, or the inner sanctum of the temple. And that was the most sacred place. And that was the place at which the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement was conducted. And that sacrifice could only be made by the high priest and only made on the Day of Atonement. That was the only time that anybody ever went in there. Which means if we want to understand the significance of the Day of Atonement, right? We've got the tabernacle, center of Israel's uh, worshiping life. The Day of Atonement, kind of the pinnacle of that. And the Day of Atonement is uh, presided over by the high priest. Now, here's the way the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement worked. The high priest would get two goats. I just have one, so this goat will serve dual purpose today. Goat number one, the high priest sacrificed in order to cleanse himself and cleanse the actual physical space of the tabernacle. The idea being, if the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement was going to be what God designed it to be, the high priest had to be first pure enough to offer it, and the tabernacle had to be pure enough. So the high priest would kill the goat, offer the sacrifice, along with some other stuff. If you want the details, Leviticus chapter 16. Go ahead and read it. It's lovely. We'll read a part of it. But then after the first goat had been sacrificed, the high priest took the second goat, and here's what the high priest did. This is Leviticus 16, a couple different verses. When Aaron, the high priest, has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the sins and the wickedness and the rebellion and the wickedness of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all of Israel's sins. He'll carry it to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness." What God is doing is he's painting a picture for Israel and ultimately for us of the way God wants to conduct his relationship with us. God wants to make a way so that all of our sins and the sins of all God's people can be cleansed from ourselves and removed not only from our lives but from 
our shared community life. God wants to literally carry our sins away and out of and deal with them for us. And why does God want to do this? Again, Leviticus repeats the same theme. On this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. And so again, we see the same theme. God has constructed a tabernacle. God has established the day of atonement. God has called high priest. priest. God has put instructions in place for all of those things to happen. And why has that been done? All of this is done so that God might be with and speak to his people in a covenant relationship. There's just one problem. I mean, that's all well and good. Like, God, you made yourself abundantly clear. You laid it all out. This is great. There's just one problem. Anybody know what the problem is? The problem is Israel consistently failed to keep that covenant. They'd fail. They'd turn away from God. They'd repent. God would forgive them. They'd do pretty good for a while. They'd fail again. They'd turn away from God, and the cycle repeated itself. If you read the whole of the Old Testament... You could make that the summary. God faithfully redeems his people. Relationship is good. They fall away. Repeat. It got so bad that eventually many of the prophets in the Old Testament started saying not only that Israel had turned away from God, but they actually started saying something bigger. They said, this covenant, it's broken broken like a glass that my four-year-old likes to slide off the end of the counter and it smashes on the floor. It's broken and there is no possible way to get all those pieces put back together one together again. But when the prophets started saying that, they didn't say that in a hopeless way, but rather they said that in a way that then said, but we actually have an even greater hope because God is going to do something new that is even greater. Of the many different uh, prophetic texts that talk about this, the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verses 31 through 34, Jeremiah talks about this day when God will do something brand new with and through and for his people and all people. Here's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
Okay. If you were in that first congregation of Jewish Jesus followers, somewhere in the mid-first century uh, A.D., living around the city of Rome, and you were one of that first congregation that read this letter that we call Hebrews, I think on the front of your mind would have been the way God made a covenant and, and, and established for the making of a tabernacle to be the center of his covenant relationship. And, and God established for the day of atonement where the sins of all Israel could be placed on the head of the first ever scapegoat who will then carry those sins out of the camp and cleanse Israel. And God established a high priest who would be the one at the center of this mediating, this interactive relationship between God and his people. But the covenant had been broken. And because the covenant had been broken, the prophets had been saying for years and years and years, God's going to do something new. Well, the first audience reading the letter of the Hebrews, they now knew what this new covenant was. They had either met personally or their parents or friends or people that they knew personally had met Christ and walked with him, had heard the teaching of Christ himself or the teaching of the apostles. They knew the new covenant. But life was getting hard for them. They were starting to suffer some persecution, some injury and insult in their lives that they were living. And they were starting to think to themselves, you know what? That old covenant worked pretty good for the people of Israel for a long time. And now that we're following Jesus, we're losing our homes and getting imprisoned and losing our jobs. Maybe we should go back to the old covenant way of thinking. And the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them, and heck, maybe in a parallel way, he's trying to convince us, don't give up this incredible gift found in Christ. Temple, atonement, high priest. Tabernacle, atonement, high priest. Uh, Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 8. We've got all the background. Let's now read uh, the first eight verses, and then we're going to not read a big chunk because I'll I'll just read the, when I read the eighth verse, you'll uh, remember it sounds familiar uh, and how we've just read some of it. So here's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. The author um, has been talking about Jesus, the new high priest. He's going to continue talking about the new high priest. And now he's giving us what he'll say is the main point about Jesus as being a new high priest. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts, and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received 
is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since this new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And then the author of Hebrews quotes the rest of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, that we just read. In order to make this very point that what Jesus is doing is something new and better than what God had done for his people in the past. And so what is it? What is this new covenant that Jesus is the new high priest over? I want to briefly highlight just a few things before we then ask the question we ask every week. What are we going to do about it? What does it mean that Jesus has done something completely new for God's people? And as the New Testament makes clear, not just for some people, but available to all people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation across history and around the world. Jesus' new covenant is greater. Next slide. Because his sinless life needs no atonement. The high priest had to sacrifice one goat first simply to purify himself. But Jesus did not need to be purified because he was sinless to begin with. So he is a greater high priest. His sacrifice needs no repetition. On the day of atonement, it happened every single year. The high priest had to prepare themselves every single year. Needed to make the confessions for the whole people of Israel every single year. But in Christ, the author of Hebrews gives us this powerful phrase over and over. He says, in Christ, the sacrifice is once for all. One sacrifice for all time and one sacrifice for all people. It does not and will not ever need to be repeated. Moreover, all the laws God gave to Moses were written on tablets of stone, and Moses had to study those tablets in order to know the pattern God wanted him to follow. But God says in Christ, we learn later, it's through the Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit living inside of us. God writes his word on our minds and in our hearts so that in order to know who God is and how to follow him, we simply must attend to his voice speaking to us in our hearts and minds. Confirmed, of course, by the body of Christ and through his written word, but he speaks directly to us. And he speaks to us directly as one who mediates directly. He's already in heaven. And his tabernacle is the heavenly one, the true one, of which any earthly image is only a shadow. This is the gospel. This is the good news that started a revolution 2,000 years ago that has had a greater impact on human history than anything else the world has ever seen. And the most logical explanation for that is because God actually did something. Jesus actually was the person he said he was. He said and did the things scriptures tell us he did. And faith in Christ has transformed hearts and lives and communities across the world in beautiful ways. And so the question, of course, is what is your move? going to be. Steve poked a little fun at me last week. He said, I required preachers to say your move. I don't actually, but it's not a bad idea, you know? Maybe I will. Yeah, maybe I'll bring a motion to you to change the bylaws. 
to put them into the bylaws. Yeah, I don't know. The first, the first thought on my mind, uh, uh, what are the implications of this for our life? Um, after the author of Hebrews goes through this whole thing and quotes all of Jeremiah, he ends with one final verse. You can look at chapter 8, verse 13. He says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon... <laughs> That's funny. The last word is actually disappear. Um, okay, in the first service, it surprised me, but I liked the surprise so much I didn't change it for the second service. It will soon disappear, and the word disappear has disappeared. Let me ask you, in your life of faith, as you think about what it means to be the kind of person who tries to faithfully follow Jesus and make that the core and foundation of everything you do, in your life of faith, are you holding on? Next slide. Are you holding on to anything that is obsolete? When I was in um, eighth or maybe ninth grade, my mom drove a white Chrysler minivan with a door on, sliding door on only one side. Anybody can picture that? Had that really like, they all had sharp fronts back in the day. And in between the two seats in the front of her minivan was this incredible, incredible piece of technology. I mean, I, I just, I just, I, didn't, I couldn't believe that technology like this existed. In between those seats, she had a cell phone. And the cell phone was so advanced that it had its own antenna on it. Anybody remember when cell phones had antennas on them? And they were supposed to be attached somehow and you would like put them up because apparently that helped. I have a question. Um, I'm willing to do this right now, 100% serious. Does anybody, uh, does anybody have a new model iPhone, mine is, is like two or three years. Does anybody have like a pretty new model iPhone? Anybody, are you willing to, I got a few. Okay, I'm willing right now, if you want, I will trade you, <laughs> I will trade you this phone right now for your new model iPhone. Anybody, anybody wanna? This phone used to work in an amazing way. I bought it off uh, eBay. No, you know why you don't want this phone? Because this phone is obsolete. You know what obsolete means? It means at one point, wow, it was, <laughs> obsolete means at one point, it was an amazing piece of technology that did powerful things and provided incredible benefit to us at one point. And now, it is worthless. It does not do anything that we need it to do because it has been replaced by something that is incomprehensibly more powerful. Why would you ever choose something obsolete? Are you holding on to anything obsolete in your life? Are you holding on to some old idea that maybe you need to be good enough in order for God to love you, that maybe you need to work hard enough in order for his love to come through you, that maybe you need to put on a nice enough face and polish your life up clean enough so that you look the right way for God and others to love and approve of you? Are you holding on to anything obsolete in your life of faith? 
All of that is best used more for an anchor at the bottom of the ocean than for something we're actually going to base our lives on. There's one obsolete way of thinking that uh, I want to talk about. Uh, Pastor Steve talked about it last week, and I want to kind of follow up a little bit. He talked about the challenge we have as as Jesus followers to, to live out our faith in modern 21st century American social and political life. And one of the concerns he expressed is the way that People in America and some some loud Christian voices have taken the great gift of our faith in Christ and the great gift of this country we live in, which enables us to worship with freedom that's beautiful. But what Steve said, and I couldn't agree more, he's concerned that some people have combined these two things in a way that turns into a power-seeking ideology instead of a compassionate and humble following of Jesus. And when he was talking about that, there's one particular strain of this that I, that I just wanted to talk about because I think it, it's addressed profoundly in everything I just said from Hebrews 8 and its background. Namely, in some Christian political voices, I quite frankly think it's a, a tiny minority, but we all know how tiny minorities can get very loud platforms. They have actually made the claim that God has made a new covenant with America. That somehow America is a new Israel and a new promised land. That, that the way God works through all nations, God is doing something uniquely special through America that he's done, that like he did through Israel. I think when the covenant through Christ came, not only did the covenant with Israel become obsolete, I think God's day of making covenants with nations was ended. The only way I think God would want to make a new covenant with a nation would be if that nation could represent God himself more perfectly than the life of Christ. Could manifest God's presence more perfectly than Christ is in heaven right now. If a nation could accomplish a sacrifice more pure and powerful than Jesus' own son hanging on the cross for the forgiveness of all sins. If a nation could do that and therefore be greater than Christ... Maybe God would make a covenant. Otherwise, I think God is now at work in this world primarily and only through his church. And his church is made up of people who live in every nation around the world. Therefore, I hope and pray the kingdom of God shows up in political ways. But I am certain the politics are always secondary. And the distance between the primary, who is Christ, and the secondary is equal to the distance between where Christ is in heaven right now and where any nation is on earth. And I don't know how to measure that distance other than to say it's an uncrossable chasm, but through Christ. Are we holding on to anything obsolete? What does it look like to live a true Christ-following life under the new covenant? Well, what it means is we ask ourselves on a regular basis, are you following? Am I following the instructions? Have I learned the pattern and committed myself to match my life to the pattern given by the life of Christ himself? There's a temptation. Um, Sometimes people think of sort of following the instructions to mean, okay, I'm I'm gonna read the Bible, and if I read it right, there'll just be a list of instructions, and I can just check them all off. Well, there... There certainly are instructions. There's rules to follow. There's things we should and shouldn't do. But to think of the 
the scriptures primarily as a list of rules, I think, is to misunderstand it. I, I love um, one particular passage comes from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd. And here's how they talk about what I think is a beautiful picture of following the pattern God has given us in Scripture. Here's what they say. Scripture is ultimately the heaven and earth story. It's the story of God and the world, creation and covenant. Creation, spoiled. And covenant, broken. Then covenant, renewed. And creation, restored. The New Testament is the book where all this comes into land, and it lands in the form of an invitation. Here's the invitation. This can be and should be your story, my story, the story which makes sense of us, which restores us to sense after the nonsense of our lives. The story which breathes hope into a world of chaos and love into cold hearts and lives. If you want to know whether or not you're following the instructions, following the pattern that God has given us, you might ask yourself, whose story are you living? Whose story am I living? Every story is ultimately a narrative, so you might might say, whose narrative rings louder in my ear as I try to make sense of the world around me? Whose narrative rings louder in my mind as I try to make sense of what's going on inside me? Because I tell you what, there's a lot of people trying to sell you and convince you of their narrative of what's wrong with the world and what's going to fix it. But we pattern our lives after a God who says it is his narrative and his story alone in which we are invited to take a part. And that is the story that provides the pattern for all we must live in our lives. So if we're trying to follow the pattern, I'll close by suggesting maybe just like the tabernacle had some daily sacrifices, some seasonal sacrifices in festival times, and an annual pinnacle, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, what about our lives? Do you have a pattern daily, seasonally, annually, of examining your heart and seeing if there's anything obsolete that you're holding on to and trusting in, of confessing your sins to Christ who's done the work once for all and has guaranteed you could not break his covenant if you tried because our faith is not in the strength of our faith, but it's in the strength of him in whom we place our faith. Our hope is not found in the perfection of our hope, but in the perfection of the one in whom we hope. It's not our own ability to be just or righteous or build his kingdom. It's Christ's ability to build his kingdom of justice and righteousness through us. It's not ultimately about our ability to love enough, but it's about his love written on our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, which will be expressed through us. What's your pattern? If I were to land with one sentence, I would say this. In the new covenant, Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his perfect sacrifice, and his perfect covenant is the pattern for us to seek to follow, the story that we are invited to get caught up in, and it's the only way we're going to make sense in any way of our lives 
and this world around us. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that like Israel, so often we grasp. We look for hope and peace. We look for truth or comfort. We try to make sense of the world. And and we try to do it by holding on to all sorts of things, to almost anything, it seems, except you. God, like Israel, we can be and we have been rebellious, wicked, sinful people. So with the promise given to us, guaranteed by Christ, that he will forgive all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God, we confess again to you our sins. Knowing that you have done through Christ for us something greater than we could possibly imagine, and it is that power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead that is now inside of us, strengthening us, guiding us, renewing us day by day. I pray, God, that for each and every one of us, we might make it our pattern, our daily, seasonal, annual pattern to build every part of our life only and always on you. Amen.